So Hugo is one of the leading scholars on humanitarian studies, with a particular expertise in the protection of civilians, humanitarian ethics, and peace process. And in the 24-year career in both academia and international aid, he's worked for Save the Children, as well as the UN in Morocco, Sudan, Ethiopia, Palestine, and Bangladesh. Um, he's also worked with the HD Center in Geneva, as well as with Oxfam, and is an advisor to the Red Cross. And he's also published numerous, numerous academic papers, which you must read, as well as a bunch of very fabulous books. Um, most recently, Protection, a Guide to Humanitarian Agencies, and Killing Civilians, Methods, Madness, and Morality. And he's also the director, currently, of Corporates for Crisis in London. Um, so I'll hand it over to you, Hugo. Maybe we'll talk for about 45 minutes or so. And then we'll open up for questions. Avashi, thank you very much. And um, Avashi has been very modest about the Oxford Humanitarian Group because it's something that she, her idea, and which she wanted to start. And so it'd be nice to think that this is the sort of first meeting of it, and um, that people will go on from all the sort of humanitarian communities here in Oxford, not just Oxford University, but Oxford Brooks, and there are some people from Brooks here, and Oxfam, because we have one of the world's leading humanitarian agencies here as well. So hopefully that group will take off, and, and people, as Avashi said, will start networking and just presenting their work to each other and, and making Oxford you know, a, a sort of centre of thinking and um, activism on this, which would be great. And in that spirit, if you'll permit me, I thought I would start um, in a sort of work in progress way, which is code for not very prepared way, um, and also start not with sort of going straight into an issue, but I thought it might be helpful for the first meeting of the Oxford Humanitarian Group if I started sort of back at basics a bit, sort of things that we all know, but maybe thinking about being humanitarian. What does it mean? What is our project? And I thought I would try and talk about it, um, looking at two aspects of being humanitarian that probably exist for us and in the world. And one is the very personal part of being humanitarian. What does it mean for me, for you, for us? What is the sort of I experience of being humanitarian. And then move and look in some ways at the more complicated aspects of when one tries to make humanitarianism a political project in the world amongst other competing political projects. So that's what I'm going to try and do and perhaps think a little bit in that respect um, if this is a, a good, a useful distinction between what it is to be a third party humanitarian someone who is coming into someone else's war as a third party, and what it means to be a main party humanitarian. How is it to try and be humanitarian when you are one of the sides in that war, when you are one of those parties? So I thought I would try and draw that distinction and see if it helps us at all. Um, I thought I'd also... I, I'm, one of the themes of this lecture is that I have not read anything about humanitarianism for about three years because I'm now a punchy, aggressive, very commercial businessman in London. And um, so I really am out of touch with where the thinking is and who's been writing, who's been evaluating, and all that sort of thing. So um, the only definition of humanitarianism that readily came to mind when I sat down to write about this on an aeroplane from Madagascar to Johannesburg on Saturday, because I've just been in Madagascar, working for a major mining company who's asked us to help them with conflict resolution with the local community. And that's a pretty fascinating new adventure. And I was actually doing it with Martin Griffiths, who's an old humanitarian too. So this big commercial company had hired these two old humanitarians to go and try and solve their strikes and blockades. 
Um, anyway, as I sat on this aeroplane flying over Madagascar, um, I was faced with this blank page being humanitarian at the top, and I suddenly realized, my God, I can't remember anything. I haven't read a book, I haven't read a paper. You know, if I'd done this a few years ago, it would have been so easy, because I would have just thought of Jean Pictet, and I would have started with Jean Pictet's definition of the principle of humanity, but I couldn't remember it on the airplane. And I would have then looked at other codes of conduct, and I would have looked at IHL, and I might have looked at some of my old papers, and I might have read some of your papers, and that sort of thing, and I could have given a, an easy lecture. And I suddenly thought, I can't remember all this stuff. And all my books are sort of sleeping on a shelf in Oxford, and I haven't touched them for three years. But then I did remember one breakfast um, some time ago when my children were quite small, and they're quite big now, but they were quite small then, and I was lecturing at Brooks, and I was about to give a lecture about humanitarianism, and was struggling as usual with the definition. And I remember my daughter Jessie was sitting over there with her cornflakes, and my son Solly was sitting there with his cornflakes, and I thought, look, I'll ask them, because, you know, sometimes out of the mouths of babes and children, you get extraordinary <coughs> insights. So I said to them, as I'm serving them, I said, look, Jesse, what, what do you think it is to be humanitarian in war? And she looked very seriously. I think being humanitarian in war is being kind to people in war, especially children, women, and old people. And I thought, well, yeah, that's not bad. And I could see my little boy dying to say something too. And I said, well, sorry, what do you think being humanitarian in war is? And he said, I think, I think being humanitarian in war is being kind in war and sharing your guns and bombs with your friends. <laughs> and, and instantly, actually, as I rethought about this over the, the Mozambique channel on Saturday, I thought, well, yeah, you see, this is the problem. Because it depends where you sit on what your just cause is in a war, and how humanitarian you can be, and whether you feel that the morality you're fighting for requires you to share guns and bombs and win, or whether the morality you're fighting for allows you also to be kind as you try and fight a war. So that was the most immediate definition I had, and I thought we might try and work between those two um, today as I try and think about the personal and, and the political. Um, I also, as I was flying in my little plane, um, scribbling in this book, I also remembered basically that humanitarianism is about two things, really, as I remember. It is about giving people things, as part of being trying to be kind to them, which people call assistance. And it's also about trying to protect people from other things, which we have increasingly over the last few years called protection. And I remembered also the great mantra of the ICRC that being humanitarian is about putting limits to violence. It's trying to put boundaries around human violence. So, as they say in ICRC, even war has limits. So I did remember that much, and that I think is important. Um, but really, I was aware on this aeroplane that I'd sort of returned to a sort of pre-humanitarian state as an academic or a thinker or a person. And I couldn't just easily trot out a lecture anymore. So I thought I would take advantage of that and um, start from scratch again. And I would be like Rousseau's noble savage. I'd be a sort of noble humanitarian savage who hadn't read anything that we've all written, hadn't read books 
um, but was going to be a humanitarian without being an expert on humanitarianism. And so what would that look like? How would you discover what it means to be humanitarian? And then I did have one book with me, actually, which, funnily enough, was the Christian New Testament, which still sits in my rucksack. And I remember I did have that book with me. And I don't know how many of you know Christian parables, but there are two parables which, of course, um, Jesus gives, which if you had to look in Christian texts for basic ideas of what it is to be humanitarian, there are two stories which would put that basic stuff down. And the first is a parable about the sheep and the goats. So judgment, judgment Day, Jesus says that um, people will be divided two ways, and you know, one rather grim one, one rather good one. And the goats will go one way to hell, and the sheep will go one way to heaven. And the criteria on which that selection will happen is quite simply on whether when he was destitute, you gave him shelter, when he was hungry, you gave him food, and when he was in prison, you visited him. And of course, that's really a pretty basic humanitarian injunction, too, that that is what it means to be humanitarian. It's that simple. But there's another parable, which is interesting and, of course, more famous, which is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I'll just recap it in case some of you don't know it. And it's the very famous story of about a, a Jewish guy who sets off down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and gets halfway and he gets beaten up, and beaten up very badly. So he's lying with all his stuff mixed and he's lying bleeding on the road. And, of course, the famous thing is that a very devout Jew comes along and sees him and crosses the road and does not help or touch him and walks on. And a Samaritan, who at the time were considered very low-rent, despicable creatures by first century Judaism, comes along and he does stop and he does help. <clears throat> and what's interesting about that, I think, is that it illustrates another issue with humanitarianism in the world, and when we try and be humanitarianism, is that actually it's not easy doesn't happen very easily. Often we decide not to be. Often we walk across the other side of the road. So humanitarianism is a difficult project. It's by no means guaranteed. It's quite tricky. And if I can get back to my main source for this lecture again, which is my daughter, when she was a tiny, tiny girl, I remember um, <coughs> we bought a little book of that from some church. We got a big cathedral we visited once. And, and she always knew the story as the good American, because she didn't know about Samaritan. So she would refer to the good American. And I remember asking her once, when we were driving somewhere in the car, and I was saying, Jesse, you know, why, why do you think the first guy didn't stop? <coughs> and she said, well, because of the blood. He didn't want to get involved in the blood. He didn't want to get touched by the blood and contaminated, which actually was true, because in Jewish law, if you were on your way somewhere, you were a rabbi, you couldn't risk that. But more importantly, it means a lot, of, a lot of humanitarian action is actually opted out of, because it means potential real escalation and a real engagement from which you can't tell the consequences politically. Does it mean greater entanglement? Are you getting sucked in? Is it Vietnam syndrome? All the stuff that creates risks about intervention. And I thought that was quite, quite a good answer. Um, and then I said to her, do you think there any other reason why you might have stopped? And she thought for a little. She was actually sitting in her little chair in the back of the car. I said, well, maybe he was going on to save someone else. So I didn't stop with this guy because he had a bigger job to do. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting too, actually, because in many ways in humanitarian action, when we make it a political project, we make choices. <coughs> and we actually prioritize one over another for all sorts of mixed interest reasons. 
And I thought, well, oh, Jess is doing quite well. I've got a whole lecture here, and I have. Look. <laughs> and I thought, let's try it again. And I said, well, Jesse, what, any other reason that he, he, might, he might have just crossed over the other side of the road? She said, <coughs> maybe he knew the Samaritan was coming along behind. And that's another interesting thing, because actually in a lot of the politicization of humanitarian action, people do leave the responsibility to others, or they assume someone else will pick it up. And the whole question of responsibility, state and international responsibility, is very important, and people often shed that responsibility and, um, to the others. And I thought I'd give it one last shot, so I said, OK, Jess, any other reasons why he may have crossed the road and walked past this guy? She thought, and she said, because he was a man. If he was a woman, she'd have definitely stopped. <laughs> so maybe there are nice gender issues, too, in, in this subject, that um, if we had more women running OCHA and the UN Security Council and state governments, maybe there'd be more humanitarian action. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. So, I was thinking also, if I was to start defining what it meant to be humanitarian, what would, what would I be talking about? And this is where I want to make a distinction between a third-party humanitarian and a main-party person trying to be humanitarian. And at this point in my aeroplane, actually, I was flying over Mozambique. We'd crossed the Mozambique Channel. And I looked down and I saw Mozambique and I thought, my God. And there are probably people in this room who remember that war in the 80s. That was, and early 90s, that was the, one, the most brutal civil wars of all time. And so I thought, right, well, what does it mean to be a humanitarian if I am perhaps Oxfam in that war? And what does it mean to be humanitarian if I am Renamo in that war? which was a terrible armed group. Why, what, what sort of sense does being humanitarian make to Renamo? Because we are asking in our humanitarian project that both sides be humanitarian. That's what the Geneva Conventions ask. That's what we all ask. So I, then I thought I'd think about that for a bit, and so let's do that. And as a third-party humanitarianism, I, I began to remember my own story as an aid worker. And again, I'm afraid because I haven't written any books lately, I'm going to rely on a bit of autobiography here. So let me please do that, if you don't mind. And I remember my own story as an aid worker started when I was seven. And I was sitting as a little boy after school watching an old black and white television and having a boiled egg for tea. And I remember suddenly being completely mesmerised by these images that came up on the screen, which was the the televisation of the Biafran Civil War, the Nigerian Civil War. And I stood there, or sat, and watched it, you know, egg, telly, watching this thing. And it was very striking, because there were lots of thousands of really skinny and dying black African people. And then there were these rather articulate, nice, white doctors from Save the Children and nurses talking to the camera about it all. And I was incredibly struck by that moment. And I think in some ways it was sort of the projection, the founding moment of my projection of fantasy to become a humanitarian worker, that I wanted to be like those white doctors who were doing such good things. And so what did I feel in that sort of founding humanitarian moment, if we can call it that? I think, and this is where maybe the humanitarian personal motive comes from, I felt immediately an urge to pity. I, I, I felt extraordinary pity for these people. I'd never seen such skinny, dying people. And I felt an urge to save, so I felt an urge to, to reach out and do something. Um, I also thought, felt an urge to be good, because that felt quite nice. If I could actually be like one of those guys, I'm quite good. As MSF has proved, because they, as they know in France, the med a medicine frontier doctor or nurse is 
the most desirable marriage prospect in France. <laughs> they did a one, MSFU wonderful surveys, and that was one of them. So I even at seven, I had a hunch, whoa, <laughs> might be worth, you know, playing this good card. And I thought, God, and I might even be famous, actually, because um, I could get on telly. And I would be heroic, because to do that would be heroic. And so if I think back, that's probably what began as my sort of humanitarian reach-out moment. And then, of course, 17 years later, I found myself in um, a place called Wadkali, which was a really terrible refugee camp on the Ethiopian-Tigran-Sudanese border. And I was doing it. And um, I had everything. I had my white toilet. Actually, we had Land Rovers because we were British. <laughs> they broke. Um, Land Rover, huge staff, lots of television cameras would come by, and I was doing this stuff. And... At that moment in, in being humanitarian, I suppose I was still laboring under this sort of literally this white knight, this chivalric knight delusion, probably. Um, I thought it was quite heroic what I was doing. Um, and it was quite a lot about me. But then one day I did find myself going to meet an MSF doctor about something. I found myself alone in one of the MSF hospitals there. And in Wadkali, when it began, there were about 100 people dying a day in Wadkali, which was an awful lot of people. And I remember seeing a really... I went into a ward, and there was one person lying there, and it was a really, really emaciated, dying, young adolescent boy. And I remember thinking, my God, he's, he's all alone. And so I went over, and I, I just held his hand for a bit. And he was really near death. There was the death rattle, and you could hear him. And he must have had TB as well. And I held his hand for a bit. And if I think back to that moment that physical reach-out moment of humanitarian action, I suppose what we do as humanitarians is we accept the appalling tragedy of war. We accept the terrible unfairness of war, that it takes people who often have no direct responsibility in war. And the other thing it said to me that moment, and it still does, is that the reasons we have a humanitarian project is because we do feel that every life is so precious and that there is something so precious about each life that we have to fight for each life if we get the chance and I went back the next day and he was no longer there because he had died and thousands did not die once say the children in Oxfam and Sudanese um, workers and people and Tigrayans got that camp going but that's why we do it, because the life of every person is, is precious. Moving on a little in my little biography, I then married into a Jewish family, and I have a Jewish family, so my children are Jewish, and my wife is Jewish, and I live a bit Jewish quite a lot. And that was interesting too, because then I encountered the Holocaust, not objectively and abstractedly, but I encountered the Holocaust from inside a Jewish family, and it's a very different place to encounter it from. And it, all the tragedy of that boy's death then came home in millions of people's individuals' lives. And then I began to write a book about civilians, and then I spent five years, well, three or four years, just reading account and account and account of hundreds and thousands of those lives um, being lost because of war and writing about it. And then I suppose my, my humanitarianism, my humanitarian um, 
project at a personal level changed a bit. Um, you begin to, when you read, as you all do and, and, and know, you read about so many lives being lost, you get a feeling of being devastated by this. And then you get a feeling of being quite outraged and angry. And I suppose that's the time when I became probably a bit more passionate and outraged as a humanitarian. Um, and I suppose you could say that one enters a humanitarian fury at some level. I certainly did when I was writing that book because it was just so appalling, all the accounts. And it's for every one of us when we read a Human Rights Watch document or something, we, we understand that. And I suppose I began to move to think more about human rights as well and say that these things are rights and we must struggle with people to ensure that those rights are protected in war. So my own um, humanitarian motivation began to probably politicise a little more in that way. Um, and then I also read a little about rescuers. I don't know if any of you have read the rescue literature from the Holocaust and from other places. And of course, what's sad about um, today's wars is, is so few extraordinary acts of humanitarian action by ordinary people in these wars are ever told because there isn't a culture of writing about them. They don't have researchers in universities who write retrospectively about them. But of course, when you read the Holocaust literature, you do come across this group called rescuers who did take in Jewish people and hid them for four years or something, or smuggled them across borders or did whatever. And what was interesting about the rescue literature is that rescuers are not of a particular group. It's quite hard to anticipate what sort of a person a rescuer will be. Some will be very dramatic and heroic and humanitarianly outraged. Others just won't. And when they talk about taking in a family or something, they often just say, well, I it's the right thing to do. I don't know why you're asking me. It's just so obvious to them. They're extraordinary people. And what they talk about and what they show us about being humanitarian is it's about kindness. Um, it's really also about that old motto from Leviticus, from the Jewish scriptures, um, do as you would be done to, the golden rule. And it's also about a fundamental recognition that you do this because the person in front of you is like you. Those people are like us, and that's why we reach out, because they are equally precious. So if I was to sum up this third-party humanitarianism, the personal humanitarian, what it means to be humanitarian as an individual, as a person, as you and me and, and us, maybe that's what I would say, that it is a mixture of pity and of valuing the preciousness of every life. Um, it's got a bit of vanity in there, minded, anyway. Maybe yours doesn't. Um, fury, it's got a bit of fury. It's got a bit of political passion and, and outrage. Um, and it's got a very deep sense of kindness, that kindness is important because we might need it one day ourselves, or we might want that for our children if war came to Oxfordshire. So it's also got this very profound um, point that each person in front of us is like us. Um, I don't know whether any of you have ever read Emmanuel Levinas, the French philosopher. It's probably more accurate to say, have you ever tried to read Emmanuel Levinas? Because, of course, he is a French philosopher, which means it's a nightmare to read them. But he believes very profoundly that the whole question of being, philosophically, is not a complex ontological question of, you know, the meaning of my life, what does it mean, you know, sort of Cartesian stuff, I think that therefore I am. It's not all about me. He believes that the whole question of being is instantly informed. It only becomes a question when you're faced with the face of the other, which is his great face, phrase. In the face of the other, being doesn't become an existential question. It instantly becomes an ethical, a moral question. 
ontology is ethics. And I think that's what we, as humanitarians, try to... Well, I think that's where we start. That's what we believe, that in the face of the other, that other who is like us, that brings what some people call this imperative, to recognise the preciousness. So, there we are. If I say that that, in a sense, is the first part, that is how I understand being humanitarian as a person, as you and as me, as us, then that's what you can do when you're a third-party humanitarian. You can rush into people's walls, white Toyotas and aeroplanes and things like that, and push all the housing prices up and the food prices, and you can arrive there, and you can start acting on those feelings and those beliefs. And you do your best to save as many lives as you can in that context. But then, what about, and at this point in my flight, I, we, we come over Mozambique. It's one of the lovely things about travelling so much is that you do fly over these amazing places and you imagine what's going on underneath. We flew over Mozambique and started approaching our descent into Johannesburg. And suddenly, after the clear skies of the Mozambique Channel, we had these huge, cumulus nimbus clouds, extraordinary clouds like mountains all around us. And it seemed appropriate to me at the time, especially with my second glass of wine at that point, that we should be entering more cloudy territory when I was about to start thinking about what it means to be humanitarian if you are one of the sides in a war, because it is more difficult. So I then thought back about, what, what, how do I know about this in my life? And I remember 9-11, and I remember watching 9-11, actually, funnily enough, in ICRC's head office in Geneva, where I happened to be in the evaluation, and we all gathered around and saw the Twin Towers. And then I remember thinking a bit later, I thought, wow, there are people who would really like to kill me and my family. And I remember thinking, I don't want them to. I'm quite happy we fight a war against these people. <coughs> I think it's probably rather good we try and stop them. That might mean, mean killing some of them. Um, and I think we should kill them first before they kill us. And I remember sitting in my room at Oxford Brooks at the time and thinking, oh God, I'm now one of the combatants. And actually, I'm now thinking of humanitarianism from a rather different perspective, because I'm thinking about it full on, not as a third party, but as one of the main parties in a war. So how am I going to fight this war, but also be humanitarian, because I really want to win this war. And I suddenly thought, God, I'm like a Somali. I'm like a Sudanese. I've now reached I'm like a Sierra Leonean, or an Israeli, or a Palestinian, um, or a Serbian, or a Kosovan. It's quite easy to be a third-party humanitarian, but what does it mean to be humanitarian when you're a main party? How do you, how do, you do that? Can I be humanitarian? So my moral life, I mean, ethically, at that point, my concern came not so much about censoring other people's behaviour in war as a third-party humanitarian. It actually became thinking, how do I control my own violence, or as a, as a competent, as one of the sides, in a war? Um, and how do I manage this very difficult trade-off between winning and sinning? And in a sense, that's what the main party person who is trying to be humanitarian, it's really tough. Because they have to balance winning and sinning and, and try to make sure that they win. So I, I realise now that being at war and being humanitarian at the same time is not so easy. It always seems easy when you're a third party sometimes, or it seems easier. So I looked briefly and, th and thinking... 
what do people who are in war, at war, what is their approach to being humanitarian? And I thought maybe there are four approaches if you're a main party in war. And the first is that most people simply don't bother. They reject it. They think winning is so important. I don't get a stuff about the other things. And that was a big part of writing my book about killing civilians. I realised that most people in war, and if you look at a lot of wars around the world through history, most people operate with an anti-civilian ideology, not a pro-civilian ideology. So I realised that. And, and what does that mean? They actually opt, in order to win, they opt to take a genocidal mentality. They make arguments of necessity on the basis of asymmetry. They say, look, we're such a small person, group of people being so oppressed, whether you're Al-Qaeda or um, Hamas or whatever. Um, you say, right, it's necessary for us to use targets, that, to, to use strategies that are not humanitarian. And that's fine and fair because we've got to win. And you get other people taking much more consequentialist arguments ethically. They say, look, this is such a huge thing we've got to do that we have to do everything required to make sure we win. And some people just decide, I'm not really interested in being humanitarian because it looks weak and I need to look really powerful, so I'm just going to use a lot of power around the place and put my foot down on all sorts of people. So those are the first category of main party people who actually decide not to be humanitarian. The second part probably are a group of people who say, well, it'd be nice to be humanitarian as much as we can, and I must judge on a case-by-case -case basis in this war how I can be. And if you take an example of our own society in World War II, you get the Brits saying, yeah, we can be humanitarian about prisoners of war, so we'll treat prisoners of war really well. But actually, we won't be humanitarian about German civilians, and we'll kill hundreds of thousands of them from the air, and Japanese as well. It's a case-by-case -case thing. So, in business speak, they would say, yeah, being humanitarian is a nice-to-have, but it's not a must-have. And, in a way, that's how some main parties approach being humanitarian. It's sort of optional. And the third group, I think, do. There are a third group of combatants who work very hard to respect humanitarian and to be it as much as they can. And there are those of you who know Afghanistan much better than I do, because I don't know it at all, but you could look at NATO and say, well, this is a force that has really tried hard to limit its violence and think about it and fight in a way that is being humanitarian as much as it is trying to win. So that's a third approach you can take. And there's probably a fourth approach people as a main party can take to being humanitarian, and that is probably to decide to really use humanitarianism, to really use it, and in our terms perhaps sometimes abuse it, but to really use it. And of course they don't have much choice now, because if you look at the last 50-60 years, probably particularly since that Biafran war that I watched as a child on telly, um, we have created, out of Western money and Western moral <coughs> ambition, um, a massive international welfare system of humanitarian action, which now has agencies and staff and budgets, which means that wherever a war happens in the world, that welfare system will reach out and try and address it and be there. So if you're a main party now, that system is going to arrive whether you like it or not. Um, as a system, it's interfered with the way wars are fought to a great degree, and it's interfered physically, because now you get massive refugee camps and IDP camps, um, you get food distributions, you get all sorts of um, 
changes to the battlefield physically. And it's interesting, I mean, when the Turks decided to kill all the Armenians, or as many as they could, they followed an usual strategy of you know, terrorizing them out of their villages and just pushing them to walk out into the desert. And the famous phrase they used was, we'll just let the sun and starvation do the rest. And it did for most of them. Now, that doesn't really happen easily today. It's not a strategy you can pursue. Because if you do, as happened in Darfur and other places, push people out to say, then let's hope they just wander off, they'll be caught by this huge system that will set up these things called IDP camps and it will feed them and everything. So the demography of the battlefields changed dramatically by this welfare system. The other area which um, humanitarianism and the, the system and the new norms, if you like, have changed the battlefield is reputationally because you can um, be humanitarian politically and wear it as a badge of respectability as a main party, which is what NATO would be trying to do. Um, but you can also be constantly under a spotlight of international shame and blame games if you're not. So reputationally, it creates new issues too. But most importantly, perhaps, is that strategically, the, the big welfare system of humanitarianism gives you new strategic choices in the way you run and win your war. And it probably does this in three main ways. The first is that you can do big clearance strategies clearing out a population, um, and somebody will do your cantonment for you, because the international community will come and create the ghettos that might serve your purpose quite well. So you can use humanitarianism to win demographic battles on the battlefield. You can push your population into camps where they'll be localised and fed by humanitarianism. So you can create new urban realities by using humanitarian action. The second way you can use humanitarianism as a main party is that you can create a sort of populist front against these interveners. So it can really help your populism to constantly attack this great welfare system from the international, largely Western community as a sort of invading force. And you can criticise it and lay into it and create a, a popularism against it that serves to boost your um, power base. And then maybe the third way you can use it is for liberal state building. And this we know because that's what um, our own counterinsurgency coin operations have been trying to do for a long time in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. Because you can use this great humanitarianism and humanitarian projects and because the boundary between humanitarianism and development is very broken now, you get the whole sweep of girls' education and a food distribution. That is the humanitarian project. So you can instrumentalise that to build a liberal state, which is part of your war aims anyway. So that's the other way you can use humanitarianism as a main party. And of course, NGOs do that too, because most NGOs are liberal, progressive, Western-driven, ones with the DOSH, so a lot of them are trying to build liberal states as well, and they do the same things in war as part of the humanitarian system. So you can use humanitarian development, actually, as a crucial part of your war aims to win and create a liberal state. And, of course, it's also the same for insurgents, you know, in asymmetric warfare and things. Insurgents have often been able to use humanitarian infrastructure as core bases for themselves. 
refugee camps, whatever, food supplies, um, you know, the, the chance to step back into somebody else's country and refresh, re-ideologize, re galvanize your group who can't move anywhere and start fighting again. So insurgents use it too, not just counterinsurgents. So there we are. I've tried to think about being humanitarian as a third party and being humanitarian as a main party. And there is, surprise, surprise, we find that being humanitarian is as ambiguous as being human when we begin to make it a political project internationally. Personally, we understand that being humanitarian is all about that kindness, that recognition of the precious, precious nature of human life, that recognition that people are like us. But as political project, in a war, there are always mixed motives, as in everything else. And being humanitarian as a, as a warring party involves it as being one of the things you are trying to achieve in your strategy, your political strategy of winning. So one of the reasons we get so many complications in the application of being humanitarian internationally and in wars is because the immediate duty-based morality of being kind clashes with wider consequentialist moralities, the causes of a war and the desire to win a war. And this is what creates the turbulence and the failures and the successes in humanitarianism. So just for the, the last minute, if I can try and sum up this mid-air ramble, um, being humanitarian at a personal level is a very deep, vital and compassionate response to the other, to the human other who you recognize in some way as yourself. And you can do that as a third party and you can pursue that goal singularly as a third party. That is what you're trying to do. And you can do it impartially, just basing your approach on need. But as a main party, politically, a limiting approach to war is what you're trying to do if you're being humanitarian. You're trying to mitigate the worst effects of war. But being humanitarian when you're a main party is never something that is pursued singularly as your only goal. It's always being pursued alongside other, often much more deeper held goals, consequentialist goals, of winning the war. So I suppose if I'm trying to conclude about being humanitarian personally and politically, um, I would always have to say that being humanitarian is always going to be being competing with being many other things in war, and that it always will. Mm -hmm. It will always compete with other moralities, other big causes, and that's why it seems so <coughs> difficult, and that's why it is genuinely a struggle. And in a sense, that struggle, I think, is well captured in the Geneva Conventions and IHL, and we are lucky to have them because they are realistic documents saying, let's try and limit these wars. We know that won't always be the primary aim of combatants because they'll be trying to win them, but let's try and limit them. And I think that's, in, in realist terms, probably the best thing we can hope for the political project of humanitarianism. And I'll stop there. Thanks.